Uh, big news coming out over the last uh, several hours. VPD making more than 250 arrests. They went into this retail theft blitz and came out with a lot of productivity. Again, 258 over splitting hairs, recovering more than 50. What, $56,000, $57,000 in merchandise. And uh, yeah, this is a big feather in the cap for this VPD operations division that came forward and said, listen, we're going to try and nip this in the bud and at least get the ball rolling in the right direction. To speak a little bit more about this, Staff Sergeant Mario Mastropieri of VPD's operations division. Staff Sergeant, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me today. Well, thank you. And the question right out of the gate is obviously this has to make your uh, division feel good that you went in and had an immediate impact. Oh, for sure. And of course, it's not just our division. It's, it's, we're really listening to the voices of a, the shop owners, the business uh, owners, and also the shoppers themselves. So um, yes, it's a great success, this uh, Project Barcode. But at the end of the day, when we hear stories from those uh, businesses and praise from them, that is an even greater success for, in my mind and in our department's mind. So can you walk this through for our listeners and maybe even for myself as well? What is the process? So the police officer arrests or detains or what what are they doing? Are they actually charged or are they just released? What are, what are we looking at from a process uh, perspective? Yeah, for sure. I could give you a little bit of a rundown how you know a typical day would look. But the main thing is we work with our partners outside uh, with the businesses and the business community, the store uh, security, loss prevention officers. And a lot of these store security and loss prevention officers, they know these offenders, the shoplifters, especially the violent ones, because they're repeat offenders. So uh, basically our day looks like we are in communication with those uh, security staff or LPOs. They recognize somebody walking into the store who's previously A, shoplifted from them or B, may have shoplifted and had some sort of violent interaction with them. And at that point, they communicate to us. Uh, typically, there is a theft observed by the security staff. Um, obviously, to, to make the arrest, we have to see that theft. And most times, nine out of 10, that the, that person they recognize is there to commit a theft. So once that theft occurs, instead of having that uh, security officer or um, loss prevention officer put themselves at harm's way to try to make that arrest and be faced with violence of a weapon, our members are in place close their um identify themselves and they affect the arrest basically on behalf of that security or that store. And then that eliminates the, you know, that factor of having violence against that security officer. So in most part, most of the times what we are finding, um, they're, offenders are less likely to produce any violence or weapons towards police. So typically it's a successful arrest. Uh, and then we also got to look at, well, we have, you know, uh, acts that we got to f- uh, abide by. So we have the Bail Reform Act, for example. So there's times where we have to justify trying to remain or keep somebody in custody or hold them for court for the next morning, maybe have some conditions imposed on them. And uh, we also have to realize that there's times where we must release. So there's no reason to hold this person in custody. So typically, um, we have to make that decision. Either way, they'll be charged at that point, whether they're uh, sent to jail and be held for court in the morning, or if they're released on some paperwork with some conditions, you know, not to attend the store or that business or a certain area. Either way, a charge gets forwarded uh, through a report to Crown Counsel to our, our justice system. So one of the things that I take away from your answer, and, and I appreciate you breaking it down so simple for even a person like me that's just getting you know his feet wet in this topic, but chronic shoplifting, violent thieves. I would imagine that those are two at the top of your priority list. A hundred percent. So a lot of times when I produce these stats, I do remind people our, our goal here is 
is not to, you know, have a hard, fast, zero policy on any shoplifting whatsoever, no matter the dollar amount, because that's not realistic. And even the business owners and the security also have the same uh, belief in that. So we're really targeting that violence uh, and the repeat offenders. So we, we see the repeat offenders. Like one of the stats on this most recent uh, project was there's 25 repeat offenders in 16 days. And that's just locally. And part of this third phase of barcode was expanding it lower mainland wide to other police agencies and we even saw 11 of the offenders that we arrested in Vancouver all of a sudden you know being arrested in different jurisdictions getting arrested for the exact same thing so this is what we're we're targeting and we we have to understand that everybody has uh, an acceptance of why somebody shoplifts we we could all agree that there's poverty for example Mm -hmm. there's mental health there's there's drug addiction and there also is a, a organized crime aspect to some of these thefts, you know, the bigger ticket items. So there's a lot of levels of why somebody were to steal. And there's a lot of levels of government that, hey, they need to step up in their in their levels to, to try to combat this, specifically the violence. And uh, one of the things in, in the release that I was reading that I actually thought was pretty cool is that you work with several different jurisdictions here. But one of the questions that I had coming from it is you have specific police like Delta Police, Port Moody Police, VPD, working with RCMP detachments from Burnaby, Richmond, Langley. How do those work when you have kind of church and state? Are you guys finding a seamless transition to be able to communicate properly and effectively and efficiently? We're, we're in the early stages of expanding that. Um, so this third phase of barcode uh, obviously was one of my personal goal is to make this a little bit more of a lower mainline because I did speak about crime has no boundaries and we all know that offender is going to commit a crime in city A but they're you know they may get arrested and they'll go to city B and and unfortunately it's the capture those real prolific and uh, repeat offenders committing crimes in the lower mainland the, the the communication aspect of it on this project for example we we presented what was successful in barcode to the other uh, jurisdictions and the other police agencies and suggested you know if this might be an approach that you might want to consider and also focus on a certain time frame. So if, if we all coordinate a time frame and limit it to the like 16 days, you know, some jurisdictions were only able to commit a couple days or maybe a week. But if we were to commit in that same area or that same time frame, that's how we capture the repeat offenders in different jurisdictions. So even though um, there are separate jurisdictions, uh, there is open communication to the other's police uh, jurisdictions in regards to who was arrested, who was caught. And also that way we were able to keep uh, a track of all the arrests and just cross-reference of them. Um, the names and who were the offenders were. Well, I can tell you as a guy that had a small business in Vancouver, it was great to see the story and great to see result to the action. So uh, Staff Sergeant, thank you for your time this afternoon. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you very much. We've wanted it for some time. At least certain people have wanted it in the downtown east side, downtown core, even traffic services. When we talk about police and body cameras, the body-worn cameras, well, beginning in November 2023, you may see some of the VPD officers wearing body-worn cameras as they do a six-month pilot project that they say, according to their website, will guide them towards a broader body cam rollout for all frontline Vancouver police officers. To talk a little bit more about this, um, I think it's a topic definitely worth discussion once again, is Megan McDermott. She's the policy director at the BC uh, Civil Liberties Association. Megan, good afternoon. 
Hi, it's nice to be here. Well, thank you for making time, especially on a Friday. And I thought this story was relevant heading into the weekend as it's getting darker a little bit earlier. Many different things right now when we start to concern ourselves with security in a different nature. And then we remember that in November of this year, that VPD is going to roll out this new program. What are your initial thoughts on this? I guess uh, um, cautious and concerned. Um, We've historically been uh, against the use of body-worn cameras. We think that there are other kind of less expensive um, and less sexy ways to get at, like, police accountability issues and to kind of prevent things from going bad in the first place. Um, and then we're all another reason for our concern about it is just the ability to add uh, software and use algorithms um, with body worn cameras or any types of technology, to be honest, um, any types of cameras in imagery, um, any any time that the government can capture images of us. And particularly with the body worn cameras, we know, uh, as I'm sure all your listeners are aware, there have been lots of rallies and protests. Um, recently about all different political issues um, and as it is people are are quite um, nervous about going and, and expressing dissent um, or even support for government programs um, in public and possibly shutting down streets and exercising their their freedom of expression and uh, police tend to be at these um, gatherings because you know they got to keep the peace keep everybody safe um, But, you know, if you think about the ability to do like facial recognition technology, something like that, that's that's something that we're really spooked about. And we're really worried about people's um, privacy and and just making sure that that this technology is deployed in in a reasonable manner. How is that different, Megan, from an intersection cam or cameras that are utilized by police agencies? Like, for example, yes, it might not be a body cam, but I've I've definitely seen police officers in certain large environments that have been recording, be it with a phone or what have you. Um, Is it more a concern of how this is going to be used after it's obtained, or is it just the philosophy as a whole? I I think it's both of those issues, to be honest. Um, The one thing is when it's on your body, uh, obviously people can get into a lot more situations. They can go into private premises, even like, well, I mean, I worry for their own dignity and privacy with bathroom stalls and all all that jazz. But, you know, please go into quite, uh, they can get into very sensitive environments where they're, you know, uh, abusive children, abusive women, very sensitive issues. Um, and we would say that, you know, people should be able to consent to whether or not their image is captured when, you know, they're, they make a call for service. And next thing you know, police are in their living room or even their bedroom. And there can be young, old people, vulnerable people around. So, so that's one difference is just the ability to get into very private spaces, places that ordinarily a dash cam or, you know, the kind of things they set up when there are big parades or celebrations that go on, um, the kind of CCTV cameras that, that, that yeah, they can just access places that usually Hmm. we don't think they can access and and for the most part it's that private premises type thing and then also the ability to record audio i think that's a big difference too um from what i know the cctv cameras that can be set up um or the traffic cams and all that it it doesn't have the ability to capture private conversations um yeah 
Megan McDermott is a policy director at the BC Civil Liberties Association. And Megan, you bring up a lot of points here. I mean, there, I wish you almost had more time to have this conversation. Um, what would you say to the critic of this that would say something along the lines of, if you're committing a crime, you lose your right to, to, you know, have those protections. Like, for example, you talk about all the intimacies here of a body cam. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think you're wrong on all of this. But at the same time, what would you say to somebody that says, well, if you're doing the crime, then you lose those rights? Hmm. Well, that's always kind of a slippery slope argument um, that is just, you know, you have to remain principled and say, um, no, we're in a liberal democracy and everybody, you know, has a right to privacy. Um, However, you know, using it as a as evidence, I think that's an interesting aspect, um, as we know, with a lot of as you know, like people, a, a big thing is that a lot of people have cameras installed even on their front doors, right? And so there's, I think as we see these emerging technologies, there's a lot of discussion and hope and optimism and cynicism about if it can be used to solve crimes, to protect public safety, um, and all of that. And I think so far, um, the, the evidence isn't quite conclusive about all of it. We are monitoring it because mm. we know that it does have the capacity to, you know, provide another perspective when it's like a he said, she said situation or just provide more access to, to what might be the truth. Um, and, uh, and particularly with respect to um, those of us who might be concerned with like police accountability issues, right? Like it's not just members of the public who can commit crimes, but also law enforcement personnel themselves. And so the question there would also be, well, might it, you know, prevent people from doing bad things in the first place or committing a crime. Um, I think it's, we would expect that with the police having this on them, um, that if they're capturing a crime or evidence of a crime in public, we would expect that that would fall under evidence. So, um, like, I I think we might see potential efficiencies um, in some of the criminal investigations. Um, but then again, on the, on the other hand, we're also looking really at if there's any proof um, that it could impact or reduce, you know, problematic policing or police brutality. Um, and so far, the, uh, the jury is out on that one. And uh, like, for instance, something that, that we think about is that there's already a lot of CCTV cameras in detention cells and in prison. There's a lot of places um, with these cameras. And also um, when, when George Floyd lost his life in the United States, all of those police officers had body-worn cameras on them. And it was the, the camera of a citizen um, spectator who happened to see that death mm. um, that kind of blew the lid off and uh, caused the police department to stop defending uh, what their officers were doing and to actually, you know, criminally charge them. Um, Megan, so- I'll tell you what, I'm sorry, I'm up against the clock, but you, you've given us a lot to talk about for the rest of the show. And I do appreciate you showing us both sides of this. So thank you for your time, Megan. Let's do this again. All right. Take care. Well played, Tim. Well played. 36 minutes after four, I'm Rob Faithfulinian for Jazz this afternoon. I hope I find you well wherever you are. Well, Canadian dentists are looking for answers. Ottawa's got this soon-to-be-announced federal dental insurance plan, and the federal government um, obviously wants to expand 
but yet there's a lot of dentists across this country that haven't really heard anything. They've kind of been left in the dark. And that is a problem considering this is knocking on the doorstep. It's not far from now. So to talk about this, from the BC Dental Association, their president, Dr. Rob Olansky. Doctor, good afternoon. Hey, Rob, how are you? I'm okay. I'm just trying to figure this out because it seems when you look at it from 10,000 feet that this is a good thing. But if you're not informing those who are going to you know, be affected by this, that's a bit of a problem. Yes, certainly challenge, you know, challenging for us. You know, we as dentists, we all want to support and champion a federal program that will provide the best patient care and sustainable outcomes for, you know, for Canadians. And as dentists, we're, we're extremely grateful for this potential opportunity. Uh, but we've gone public now simply because we're at the 11th hour. And uh, as dentists, and especially as the president and, uh, of the British Columbia Dental Association, we still don't know anything. And in fact, uh, this has been shown to be supported across the entire country as uh, 11 provinces have co-signed a letter to uh, the ministers uh, requesting information and explaining our frustrations. And it's been signed uh, by all provinces, including Quebec. So I, I guess my question is, you know, we talk about phrases like the 11th hour and two months to go. How right. do you not have the answers to these questions? Like, where is the, where's the tripwire in all this? Well, it's simply a refusal of, you know, Health Canada to communicate with us. Um, You know, we have sent and we have asked questions and sent letters. This process, Rob, was started over a year and a half ago. Uh, And there was initial consultation with, uh, you know, our health minister at that point, uh, Minister Duclos, and nothing uh, has been, we have not been able to, you know, be given any information. Uh, The Canadian Dental Association has worked with them, but they are bound by uh, NDA agreements. And, of course, an NDA agreement for someone like myself and all of the presidents uh, of all of their provinces is extremely frustrating because our role as a president is, number one, to communicate with our member dentist, and also for them to ha- that gives information for our member dentist to reach out and communicate with all of their patients, which would be you know, all, uh, potentially a third of the population of Canada. It's unreal. Dr. Rob Olansky is the president of the BC Dental Association. Uh, doctor, is there a deadline where if you don't get this information from the government that you're just not going to be able to implement it on their timeline? Well, we don't know that, you know, and, and, and I'm sure they are finding that this process is probably more challenging than they expected. Uh, there is the possibility that they continue uh, the existing uh, the existing program they have now, which is essentially just a, a dollar subsidy for a basket of services until such time they develop a program. But our point is that dentists are truly the experts in what we do on a daily basis. I, I always say, I don't know much about life, but the one thing I am expert on is being a dentist. Mm-hmm. And our dental association, we have programs, we have knowledge, we have statistics. We supplied those uh, to the government, but have really really just uh, to this point uh, I've heard nothing back it's crickets I find the crickets almost like shocking in the fact that yes there's some big numbers that are being bandied about out there and yes they've wanted to get this done for some time you mentioned over a year I just can't believe that there's this kind of a disconnect especially this late in the game so my question to you in the old adage of don't bring me your problems bring me your solutions is what can get done and how quickly from the time that they would actually sit you down and finally explain this to you could you actually implement it? Well, you know, th- th- that's, you know, that's the big million dollar question. Mm. Uh, I mean, certainly dentists are capable of implementing things quickly. Uh, you know, we're very familiar with administering, you know, regular dental insurance plans. 
but we just don't have an idea what this one will look like. And so essentially at this point, we're just guessing. We're, we're, we're putting together as an association, as all associations across Canada are doing, contingency ideas. What if then we do this? What if then we do that? But it certainly is frustrating. You know, as, as a practicing dentist, one of the things that we do on a daily basis is provide our patients informed consent. In other words, if there's treatment, our role is to guide, to help guide them through, mm-hmm. not make a decision for them, but provide them the information so they can best make a decision for themselves. And that is what we do on a daily basis. We are incapacitated from doing that because we don't have that knowledge, knowledge to share with, number one, our dentists. And then for all of our dentists to share that with their patients. And that's extremely frustrating for all of us. And that, and that is why we're reaching out to, to government as well as to media at this point. Yeah, you know what? And, I, and you're right to do so. And I'm sorry that we had to bring you on the show to talk about it in such terms. But, you know, doctor, I, I, ho- I, I, I see where you're going with this. And I understand that it's not all negative. But, yeah, it, it's time to go. Yeah. And, and, and we don't want it to be negative. We, you know, as dentists, I mean, first and foremost, this is about the patient, no one else. Uh, you know, I'm a dentist because I want to deliver the best possible treatments to the you know, patients I, I care for. Uh, and all dentists feel this way. And, and, and I think that's why we're so frustrated. You know, it almost reminds us, reminds me when COVID started and we weren't we weren't allowed to practice for a period of two months. And, and dentists were horribly frustrated because we're clinicians. Our, our job is to go out every day into the real world and, and help our patients. And we couldn't do that for two months. We tried to do it over the phone. We you know, prescribed a lot of antibiotics. Our hands were tied behind our back, and we're feeling almost like that again. And, you know, and that's the challenges. And there are, you know, there are, there's potential unintended consequences that we're very, very concerned about, especially for you know, patients here in British Columbia. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on to shine some light on this. Thank you. Let's talk about this again, and hopefully we'll be talking about things under better circumstances. Well, I hope that, you know, when we speak again, we'll have uh, positive things to provide. And, uh, of course, you know, we, we wish everybody the best and, and look forward, uh, hopefully, to a program that uh, it may not be perfect when it comes out. And we're certainly here uh, willing to work with the government uh, to help benefit the, the patients and the dental patients all across Canada and especially here in British Columbia. The fewer cavities, the better. All right. Thank okay, you for your time today. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> all right. Rob. Well, here's something that I think is concerning. Canada's housing minister urges Metro Vancouver to think twice on development charges. That is the headline. And my question that I have is, why is Canada's housing minister urging Metro Vancouver? To talk a little bit more about this is Eric Woodward. He's the Langley Township Mayor. Eric, good afternoon. Yeah, thanks, Rob, for having me on. Well, thank you. And I guess my first question is, as a mayor of one of the jurisdictions within our community, why would Canada's uh, housing minister step forward with this kind of a request? Well, probably a question for him, but I mean, I think within the letter, um, it was clear that he, he was expressing some concerns uh, regarding the potential impact on the construction of new housing. And it's a concern that we shared and, and discussed and debated for almost six months prior to receiving his request to delay it. I would I'd be curious to know the timing of this for the simple fact that right now all of us are talking about housing, all of us are talking about trying to kickstart this, and then all of a sudden you think of these fees that are uh, potentially on the horizon, which to me almost feels counterproductive. Am I wrong in that assessment? Uh, I think it's a, it's a complicated uh, argument. The, 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 the only tools available to the mayors and Metro Vancouver to provide for infrastructure are development cost charges on new construction or property taxation or grants from government. And it's been made clear on the third category that grants from senior government is a challenge for them at the moment. 
So the only alternative available to mayors is to put an entirely increased and significant burden on everyday people trying to pay their bills uh, versus uh, development corporations and profit margins. And that, that unfortunately, that that was the choice. And we haven't turned we haven't seen it framed that way. Um, I think the federal government has a number of options and tools available to them to help with the situation around the cost for water treatment and wastewater treatment that uh, we haven't seen so far. And uh, they also have a lot of options in which that they want to help build housing, such as construction financing, for example, uh, that we haven't seen. So it, it seems they're very focused on what we're doing and maybe should be more focused on what they can do at their level of government. It's an interesting conversation because it takes my mind down to thoughts. One, if I'm a developer, I'm probably not enjoying this conversation at all. But you've brought up, you know, obviously the options that are out there and none of them really seem to be a, a slam dunk. So do you feel that this is just finding out what people's pain threshold is or do you feel that collaboration is actually going to end up with a resolution? Well, I think that collaboration can continue. This, um, you know, the approval of this fee structure now goes to the province for approval. So and it doesn't it phases in over a number of years so i think the conversation can continue i think the the letter was a little alarmist in the sense that uh, you know this isn't a line in the sand today this is going to be something that we have to solve over many years um, we don't have an option to as metro vancouver has outlined very clearly not to build water treatment not to build wastewater treatment so that has to be funded somehow and uh, for us today uh, over the long run it was clear that, that we were not prepared and not wanting to put it on to increase property taxes for everyday working people trying to keep stay in their homes and uh, pay their bills. And uh, whereas the federal government, you know, could step in quite easily and match us with infrastructure funding, because all we did today was decrease the so-called assist factor from 50% down to 1% to, to share, to have it to be for growth, paying for growth. So they say, um, the federal government could have matched that funding and left it exactly as it was, and they, they chose not to offer that. So I think there's a number of options that can continue to be explored over the coming few years here. I appreciate you breaking that down, because I think when you look at it, there's some people that would have some sticker shock. There's some people that would say, this this can't happen. I mean, Kevin Falcon jumped all over this, saying that if he was the premier, this would be uh, there would be no start to this. But the reality is, I think, with education and, as you said, collaboration, yeah. I think there's going to be some things here um, that might be able to work in the long term. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I, I, that's what I want to do. I think that uh, it was frustrating a little bit today uh, to, you know, not have a more of a, a collaboration and a, and a conversation. Um, you know, the, the housing minister for the British Columbia, uh, Minister Callan, you know, delegated and came and talked to us. I think that probably would have been more constructive. And I think we could have had a conversation about, about some of the, the choices that we're facing. I think uh, MLA Falcon's uh, suggestion that somehow we're increasing the cost and he would cancel it. Well, then what he would do then is essentially require us to raise property taxes uh, 20% over the next five years. So I don't view that as a very constructive suggestion because I don't believe that he would want to do that either. And so really it came down to a very unfortunate choice based on the tools that we're provided with by senior levels of government that are criticizing us. If we had more tools to work with, I think that would be a great thing. It's great conversation. Mayor, I appreciate your time today. Hopefully we'll do this again. No problem. Have me anytime. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to clear it up. I love good sciencey things and things that, uh, you know what, you're like, come on, tell me that's not true. Well, researchers have identified buried kimberlite. 
the rocky home of diamonds, for those who don't know what kimberlite is. And they did so by testing the DNA of microbes on the surface. Now, what that means, I guess in its simplest terms, is they can test what's on the surface and let you know what might be underneath, up to 10 feet, 10 meters. Let's get the, the professional's thought on this. Dr. Sean Crow, senior author and associate professor in microbiology and immunology at the UBC. I don't know if I said that right. And also the research chair for Canada in geomicrobiology. Doctor, does that fit on one business card? barely it's a it's a yeah it's a few too many words (laughs) (laughs) it just makes you look real smart where i'm from i can't even pronounce half of it but let's get into this because i'd like to think that there are people that put a lot of money into trying to find where diamonds are and now there's a biological fingerprint that might uh help them along yeah that's right so we're hoping that the new technique might decrease the cost of exploration for uh for diamonds and kimberlites and other minerals why is this such a big deal? Why are some people, uh, you know, bugging out about this? Because I would assume a lot of that has to do with the effort and and really making this a process that can be simplified. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, that's totally fair. So for for decades, um, explorationists have relied on uh, tools from the fields of geophysics and geochemistry to search for buried minerals. And now with uh, the application of new sequencing technologies, we can uh, we can bring biology into the story. Well, I was going to say that the headline talks about diamonds, but would this not be the beginning of um, a scientific advancement with other deposits as well? Like, could we could we see this for gold eventually and other and other valuable uh, deposits? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, our research that was recently published is focused on diamond exploration, but we've got parallel research into other types of mineral deposits. And we're really excited about the potential of the technique to improve the search for critical minerals like copper. Dr. Sean Crow is the uh, Canada Research Chair in Geomicrobiology, joining us here on the Jazz Johal Show. I want to talk about this from more than just rich minerals. How else could this benefit us? Is is there any way that it might help us in in the world of health? Is there other ways that we could utilize this technology? For sure. So, uh, you know, DNA sequencing is revolutionizing the health sector. Um, in fact, uh, we're borrowing tools and techniques from the health sector and em- employing them now in the in the resource sector. So uh, it's, a, it's a great way in which there's uh, cross-fertilization across disciplines. I, I always think to myself, okay, well, is somebody going to get greedy? Is somebody going to take advantage of this? Is there a country that's ahead of everybody else? I mean, who right now is at the forefront of this technology? Well, I would say that Canada is. Um, you know, we've we've developed the technology uh, in Canada, and Canada is also a world leader in in exploration. Um, a large portion of the uh, global mineral exploration budget every year is uh, is spent in Canada, and so I would say Canada is definitely at the forefront. I think it's a fantastic story, but. Uh, my final question for you, Doctor, and I really appreciate your time. What's next? I, I know when you say that to somebody of your ilk that you're probably like, hey, man, we've done good so far, but you've, you've seen this work now. Where does this go? What's the next thing we can expect on the horizon? Yeah, so I think there's, uh, you know, there's two things. There's, there's a lot of fundamental science still to do to understand how these signals develop. And then there's the translation of the fundamental science into applications. So Thanks for listening to, to do, the Jazz Joe Hall uh, Show podcast. To, um, Don't forget to, to subscribe to the show the on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get But I got to think from a financing podcast. perspective, if you you've now got this technology, Jazz if it's been discovered, going out and getting some people to, to, to back on you might be a lot easier than it was before this became discovered. And connect with me on Twitter at That's the hope for sure. Talk to you next time. It's always hope. Doctor, I appreciate your time today, and thank you for making it for me. 
My pleasure. Thanks for the chance to speak.